0: December. Hello. Hey Jules. So we usually do this in person, but we are both traveling for the holidays. So here we are on an online platform looking at each other. I know brought
1: together by the miracle of the internet.
0: It's a beautiful thing. (laughs) Jules, where are you right now? (laughs) I am in Belmont, Massachusetts in my mom's sweet attic Mm -hmm. and yeah, back in the Boston area for the holidays and super grateful to be here and had no flight delays. And I thought of you and I was like, honestly,
1: that is a miracle. I didn't have any flight delays either coming out. Like it was just a direct flight to Chicago, but I was like, I feel like I'm like thanking God every time I don't get canceled or delayed at this point. (laughs) Yeah. I
0: feel like 2023 was kind of hard on you in the flight delays department.
1: Yeah, definitely. um, Definitely was not my year when it came to air travel. Yeah, some karma to work through there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm hopefully banking it all up. (laughs) I love it.
0: Yeah, so where are you this morning? Where am I finding you?
1: I am in a hotel overlooking Grant Park in Chicago. I did uh, a thing for NPR last night. It's uh, like a quiz show called Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me that I like, grew up listening to this thing. And so it was really cool getting to actually be on it. And I'm just a big fan of the show. And it was very fun. Absolutely wild. <laughs> yeah. How did it go? How did you do? <laughs> it was so much fun. Um, it was funny because my with my family being up in Wisconsin, they all wanted to come down and see the show because they've also been listening for years. And my mom was lecturing me beforehand of like, don't swear on there. Like it's NPR. Like they're very nice people. You swear too much. And the show was one of the most unhinged, like raunchy, like Bobcat Goldthwait, like was making jokes about like having sex with my mom. (laughs) It was insane. And so funny. Like it was just like a good time.
0: (laughs) That's incredible. And how did you like do with the actual like questions and being on the spot? Um, I got two out of
1: three correct. It was very hard. um, But like the whole point of it isn't necessarily like the they make the the quiz portion that I'm on for specifically questions that I would have no idea about. It's called like not my job. And so they ask something like specifically completely unrelated to what I do. And were you nervous at all before this? I wasn't nervous. I feel like I don't get that nervous for, like, public speaking stuff, even though it was, like, it was at, like, the Studebaker Theater, and it was, like, a, like, yeah, like, full crowd and whatnot. I feel like I, like I can, like, lock in a little bit. It's almost, like, like, right before I go on, I'm just like, okay. It's, like, a almost, like, before a race. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And I, I
0: kind of asked you this off-air earlier this week, but do you ever get nervous? Like, what makes you nervous?
1: I feel like, like racing does make me nervous just because there's so many like contingencies and a lot of things that I can't control and because I'm so used to like like the nerves before a race which are just so intense I feel like with stuff like public speaking because not that it's any less terrifying but there's it's not like I have to worry about like will my like bottles be there or like there's just so many other things with racing that it's kind of like actually doing like a, like a performative thing seems a little bit like easier because all I have to do is talk.
0: Yeah, it is interesting. I feel like in a racing environment, there's not only like you, your body, nutrition that you have to take in, mm. but then there's also like a lot of people around you where mm. it's like when
1: you're doing something, performance or speaking, it's just like you sitting. And especially <laughs> with something like this too, because it's like, I'm not like having to lead the show. I'm just kind of like, I feel like I'm able to like, it, like my brain works pretty quickly. And so it's like, I can usually like get the like banter going or like respond to people like pretty quickly and well like react. So it's like, I think if I were having to like present a show or something or like lead something, I would be a lot more nervous.
0: Yeah. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, so my hope for this episode, I feel like we always just dive right in, is we're going to do kind of a half and half today, which is a bit of a Mm -hmm. different format. We're going to first talk a little bit about your past month of training and Mm -hmm. life um, and preparation for the Olympic trials, which is coming up around the corner. Mm -hmm. And then the second half, we're going to take listener questions. Last month, we did a call for questions. We got a ton of awesome, awesome questions. Mm -hmm. And so unfortunately, we can't take all of them, but um, we have a couple that we'll get to go through and then we'll kind of take it from there. How's Mm -hmm. that sound?
1: That sounds great. I know I'm excited for the question part of it. I know. I'm kind of excited to throw some curveballs at you.
0: Um, (laughs) We'll maybe make you a little nervous. Oh, God.
1: (laughs) What makes you nervous? These questions. (laughs) But yeah,
0: let's kind of go back in time. You were saying, you know, sometimes you get nervous for racing. So this past month, at the beginning of the month in December, you actually did a 10K in Hawaii, which Mm -hmm. you crushed and you won. Um, Tell me a little bit about that race. Were there any nerves? And why did you choose that
1: 10K? uh the act of choosing that 10k was a very last minute thing it quite literally came together the week beforehand when i was flying with my agent um out to an event that i was doing for puma and we were like searching for a race we could not for the life of us find a prep race because with the trials being so early everything like falls right around the holidays and you're not going to have a race on christmas so it, he was like, "Oh, there's this race that's happening in conjunction with the Honolulu Marathon. They usually do the pro Mary Mile, but they also have this kind of like, it's not even a, an official 10k. You literally just run the first 10k of the marathon, and then they kind of like shunt you to, to the, like to the side. And it ended up working out perfectly. Like they had a hotel room for us. Uh, Jessa and I flew out. Um, another woman from Flagstaff, Rebecca, came with us as well, and it was like." kind of perfect because it was very hot very or not that hot but like 75 degrees pretty humid and just like the chaos of like racing in a really big field because it's the I mean there's 30,000 people for the marathon so it was nice just getting to do that without a whole lot of like pomp and circumstance around it it was kind of just like go out like deal with a lot of chaos and race hard
0: and how did it actually
1: feel the race? Were you did you have anyone around you? Were you by yourself? No, it was it, like it felt really good. I was surprised how like good my body felt. Um, I ended up running with Andy Wacker Is a professional like trail runner. Um, I believe he lives in Boulder, and we've met a few times. And, uh, he was racing the marathon. And so it just worked out that our paces were pretty similar and he's just a super friendly guy. So like, we kind of like linked up like right at the beginning there and just ran together for pretty much my 10 K. I felt bad that he had to effectively pace me for a 10 K and then go run another 20 miles after that. But yeah, he was just like such a champ about it that's amazing so he was he was doing a marathon he was doing the full marathon yeah oh my God. And well and incredible. so this is the thing andy is like such a friendly guy that he was like talking to me throughout it and like 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 being super positive and like cheering me on like you got that like something i'm like dude you have a far harder race than i've got right now like <laughs> wow he's just such oh. a yeah such a like funny funny nice dude
0: So from what you told me, this race starts very early in the morning. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, we started, the gun went off at 5 a.m. So, yeah, we did 3 a.m. wake up. Originally, the marathoners left the hotel at 2.45, and we were like, we are not doing that. Basically, we woke up at 3, kind of like got, got our stuff ready, and then at four, we just warmed up by running over to the course and around there. And John like had his little bike whatnot. And he like carried all of our stuff.
0: And was there ever any like decision points during that race? Like any points where it got hard and you're like, I'm choosing to dig in or any points where you're like, wow, this actually feels really good. I have more to offer.
1: I think I was a little bit disappointed with myself in that I just fell off a little bit more than I wanted to. I like, we went out at a pretty good pace, like right around like 5.10s. And then because John had just told me, just stay with the pack and just race people, I kind of settled into like the, the second group of men's marathoners. And so we settled in closer to like 5.20s. So definitely backed off the pace a little bit more than I wanted to. But like, I felt pretty good. I think it was a good indicator that I'm like, okay, like I really need to like focus when I'm in these things, I can't just like settle into a pace, um, and go, but I guess in terms of like doing a marathon in a month or six weeks, like it's, it's nice to practice just like truly racing and focusing on the people around you. But yeah, it was one of those things where I'm like, it would have been nice to maybe run a little bit faster, but I think for the day and for what that race was, I'm pretty happy with it overall.
0: Yeah. And I mean, also weren't you during that race, like in the
1: middle of a high volume training week, like there wasn't as well. Yeah, no, we just went basically straight into it. of still trying to maintain like pretty solid mileage with travel and with racing. And we had to cool down 11 miles after it to still get in a 20 miler. So it was like one of those things where it was a little bit brutal of just, you never feel totally 100% when you're doing something like that. How do you, during the race, not think about the fact that you're going to have to cool down for 11 miles? Like, I feel like it's just complete compartmentalization. Like, it's it's a thing where you almost have to, like, pretend that... I'll do this a lot with races, that I almost have trouble, like, thinking two steps ahead of, like, even with the trials. Anything after that race does not exist to me. Like... My life only goes up until the start of the Olympic trials marathon. And same thing with this race. It's like physically in my mind, I can't think of anything after the race. It's only that 10K and then I'll figure it out afterwards.
0: And do you feel like you've trained your brain
1: to compartmentalize or do you naturally kind of do that? I've had to like train my brain to do that because if if left to my own devices, I will think – 15 steps ahead of everything, which is pointless because I've just found, especially with races like this, you don't know how you're going to feel afterwards. Like we had a lot of different plans of like, either maybe my knee is going to hurt and I can't cool down. Maybe my knee will feel okay, but I'm tired. So we'll do a regular cool down. Maybe I'll be feeling great and we'll do a tempo afterwards. Maybe I'll just keep racing and stay in the race. Like that one, John was like, absolutely not. Um, but it's like, a lot of it is is just kind of assessing where you are at at any one point and then just making the decision from there because it's useless planning ahead like i can make every decision in the world beforehand and then something could happen in the race i think there's so much wisdom in that it
0: almost feels like you have like this decision tree and you have all these options and then based on you listening to your body <laughs> like when you finish the race then you can decide okay which branch of the tree am i going to take
1: i think that is a good like Yeah, I I think that's uh, like a really good thought of just that's kind of how I approach races in general, too. Like, it's the reason that I don't ever make a race plan. Like when people ask me, like, what's your race plan at the trials? I'm like, I don't have one because I don't know how the race is going to go. You may you almost like develop this toolkit of, yeah, your possible options and then prepare yourself as well as you can for each of those options. And just know that it's never going to happen how you think it's going to happen.
0: Was that ever, that compartmentalization and that capacity also to see multiple options, when do you think that kind of developed within you? Was that something you had in college or happened later in, not later in your pro career, you're still early in your career?
1: <laughs> Late into my career, the twilight years of my career. Um, I think it's something that when it almost looked like I'm a chronic overthinker, but racing is the one time that I feel like I allow myself to like let myself naturally just like, I'm trying to think of the right way to like, uh, what's the right way for me to say this? Like, I almost think of it as like, people always think of like, say like your body is the car and you're the driver. I don't think of it like that. I think of my brain as like, the race engineer that's checking in on the body and making sure nothing is like overheating, nothing's feeling bad and stuff like this. But it's almost like your heart is the driver. Like, I know that sounds cheesy. And sometimes you have to let your brain, like sometimes you almost like have to like, quote unquote, like shut off the radio to the engineer and just let your heart kind of like guide you. And so it's the kind of thing where I feel like those are the moments when I let myself be really intuitive in races and when things are going well, like that is my best racing self is when it's just like the engineer is checking in every so often. The brain is like controlling a few things, but I don't think that overthinking in a race and letting your brain dictate your moves in a race leads to good racing.
0: What a beautiful metaphor. I love that idea of your heart as the driver.
1: That's so cool. (laughs) It's I think it's just, it's so easy to, like try and like think your way through a race and it's like i think that just gets you deep lost in the weeds that it's like sometimes sometimes my brain is the biggest limiting factor and so the more i can practice letting that intuition take over the better the races go
0: Mm. Yeah. We've spoken to that before of like almost like this channel, Mm. like kind of letting yourself like be that channel and letting the energy move through you Mm. and trusting in your intuition, trusting in your heart.
1: Yeah. I think we like, it's almost this, we like, and I've gone through a lot of phases of this, of believing that you have more control over a situation than you actually do of like, man, if I just visualize every possible thing that could happen in this race or yeah, Just like make all of these plans that it'll go perfectly. And yeah, I just don't, I don't fall into that camp. I think you've got to be ready to just accept the things that you aren't going to be able to change in the race and trust that you're going to know what to do in that moment.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. I know this past week um, you had, you crashed a workout in Camp Mm -hmm. Verde before you went to Chicago. Um, mm-hmm. my partner, we've spoken about him before he works for Strava mm-hmm. and I'm not on Strava, but he was like, look at this workout. Cause you've been having a little bit of a niggle recently. Yeah. So he was really excited. We were both mm-hmm. really excited to see you had such a solid workout. Mm-hmm. How did that kind of, how does that decision tree model like come up in workouts and how did that workout go for you this week, especially with mm-hmm. in light of what you've been dealing with the past two weeks with your knee?
1: Yeah. So for me, workouts are actually way more mentally taxing and harder than races, oftentimes, because in a race, I feel like it's a lot easier to get into the groove of the race. You've got people around, you've got the energy of it. And so it's much easier for me to let that intuition take over. Whereas in a workout, because you're so focused on hitting your paces and performing a very specific task, I can get really caught up in that. And it Gives me a like a lot of anxiety. That's something that I really dealt with, especially when I was really struggling going into my Boston build. I could not get through workouts because it was, I was almost having like panic attacks with the thought of not being able to accomplish the goal of the workout, overthinking it, all this stuff. And so it's been honestly a real learning process of trying to figure out how to switch into that marathon brain during workouts. And that's what the, basically what we did, it was on my way down to like, I was down in Camp Verde. I was flying out later that day. So we were like, let's do a long, like marathon pace progression run. So not super long, but like 12, 20 K or so. So 12.4 miles and really practice, not thinking five steps ahead. Like Basically, this loop in Camp Verde is 5K loops. And I always have the problem that the first two loops, I'm always thinking about what the last two loops are going to feel like rather than being in that moment of the first two loops. And so that's what I was really practicing is just being in that moment and allowing myself to let the workout progress naturally without psyching myself out.
0: And how did it feel? And how did your knee
1: feel? It felt great. Like I've been dealing with just like, just knee pain. The body's just been a little bit off. Um, Like things have been, I've been trying to like really like nail down some form things and just hip mobility and all this stuff. And my knee usually takes the brunt of the impact when things aren't moving well. So my knee has just been really off basically since the week before Hawaii. And like, I felt it in the cool down there. So it was really nice. So it was the first time that it hasn't been like, killing me. Cause I basically missed the whole week after Hawaii of workouts just because I couldn't, I tried this same workout the previous Saturday and had to bail after 5k after that first lap. So yeah, it was, it was just a nice step in the right direction of like getting in a good, solid workout that I always look to is like, these are like really critical key marathon workouts for me. And I'm like, I just want to be able to like, yeah, be able to feel like I'm like checking the boxes for, for this marathon build.
0: Yeah. I'm so excited for you. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And that Camp Verde loop, we were down there last Saturday together and there's so many animals on that loop. It's oh, so many yeah. angry dogs and alpaca. And I'm <gasps> curious, which one is your favorite house or which house gives you inspiration?
1: So it's so funny because we run down on this loop so often that you see all these animals and each like each house with the different animals, they all have their personalities. There's the five alpaca house and they all run around in the yard. And then there's the cows on the corner that always lay on the ground that I call them ground beef. And there's like, yeah, like a German shepherd house. There's a house with the wire haired Griffin pointers. This is Jules's dog. Um, But it's just so, and like, There's one with like these little like whippet greyhounds that are like speedy long boys that like sprint at us every time we go. So it's really funny. It gives you like it almost like allows me to focus on something else of like every time I come up to a new house, it's a new kind of dog. But yeah, the dogs love to bark. they love to park i think the alpaca house might be my favorite it's really funny too because they'll flood that yard every so often because there's a lot of like irrigation in there and so they'll splash around (laughs) in the water they're very cute alpacas i will say so cute. Mm. I also think
0: what's interesting about Camp Verde is, you know, before I moved to Flagstaff on Instagram, you'd see all these reels of professional runners running at Camp Verde. Mm. And it's this like 5K loop, as you said. It's pretty much square, but the pavement around the loop is not great. Well, like, and not...
1: they redid it, they redid it, and it made it worse. <laughs> what? Yeah. It actually used to be pretty nice on the main front stretch of it. Like, It was the kind of thing where when I would hit it, I was like, ooh, like this is like smooth pavement. But now it is gnarly. Like it is not great running. But if anything, I feel like that loop is good training for the marathon because the road is pretty nasty. That is a really good point.
0: I think just for like outsiders might think like, oh, all the best runners in the nation are like must be running on this like buttery, perfect,
1: smooth road. And I'm like, no, it's really janky. Yeah, (laughs) I I think people would be really surprised to see just like... Yeah, just how not great a lot of the training areas that are like super hyped up, of just like flags, yes, best running in the world. And then it's like, oh, you go to some of these spots, you're like, hmm, really? Like this random road loop in a neighborhood in Camp Verde that is like, has like potholes and like cracks, and the road kind of slopes off. Yeah,
0: I got yelled at last week when I was running there because I've I went been- on like. I went on a side street, yeah, and someone oh. was yelling at me for being on their private property. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry.
1: So, <laughs> Don't worry. Apparently, um, a couple of weeks ago, the Under Armour boys were there. And granted, they had a very large group that they were running with. But some woman was like, you can't have a road race here. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. Yeah. I wonder even what the locals
0: of Camp Brady must think about all the pros.
1: I think they hate us. I think they absolutely hate us. Because <laughs> it's like, I mean- imagine if you... Like, I would assume that you're not living in Camp Verde because you want to be around a ton of people all the time or have a bunch of youths coming around. And, like, imagine buying a house in Camp Verde and you think it's going to be this lovely, rustic, like, rural, scenic area. And then all of a sudden you have, like, 30, like, yeah, 30 millennials and Gen Zers showing up every week, blasting rap music, like... Taking themselves very seriously. Taking themselves way too seriously. But it's like, so when John bikes with me around there in the workouts, he's like blasting music for me. But then every time we somebody's out in their yard, he'll like turn it down as we go past so that they're not having to like, I'm assuming they don't want to listen to Kendrick Lamar. <laughs> I love that. Okay. So highlight one of the highlights of my past week
0: was I went on a run back when we were both in Flagstaff and I was listening to this podcast of these two amazing sisters. Um, and I was like, I just felt like I was running with my friends with Izzy and you tell me a little bit about your pod with Izzy. Let's give it a shout out.
1: Um, yeah, the, I hate my thoughts podcast is Izzy's been trying to get this going for a while. Basically she created an entire PowerPoint presentation to convince me of this a few months ago. And I kept shooting her down and kept shooting her down. And then she basically just wore me down to the point of like, this would be kind of fun, but we we reworked the idea quite a bit because originally Izzy was like, Oh, we can just talk about ourselves. I'm like, "Mm, I kind of do that with Jules. And also I don't think people need to hear more about just our lives. And so I suggested the idea that we do it kind of like as a almost like a participation podcast amongst sad girl track club, just because sad girl track club has become such a, like a thing now that it's been really fun to get a lot of listener stories and like armchair anonymous style just hear and feel like it's a, like a conversation with, with the sad girl track club members And honestly, some of these stories are far more interesting than anything that's ever happened to me. And so also... Izzy doesn't call me outside of this, so it's just a good way to keep in touch with Izzy. Regardless, she's laughing behind me <laughs> the couch. You sound like a horrible person? No.
0: <laughs> I love it. I'm going to put in a request that you two talk about um, the times you've been struck by lightning because I feel oh, like God. that's like a very like
1: unusual thing both of you have been through. I know. Well, um, Izzy, Izzy doesn't remember when she got struck by lightning because she was a baby. Like I remember that, but she doesn't but psychologically. Psychologically, <laughs> her body remembers. Yeah. Problem. The body, the body is keeping the score.
0: <laughs> it is, but yeah, just wanted to give your other pod a big shout out because it was really <laughs> fun to listen to. Um, Okay, so last kind of December thing, or last December things to check in about. You have a could we call it a race tonight?
1: What? Oh, what is tomorrow. This yeah,
0: yeah. Tell so, me about
1: Grind Fest. Grind Fest is basically so there's a national speed skating center in Milwaukee, and it's an like. Basically, around the outside of the speed skating rink is a 420 meter track that a lot of people in the Milwaukee area who run in high school, run in college, will go there in the winter because it is training. It is like hell to train in Wisconsin in the winter. And uh, I don't know how long ago they started doing this, but a couple, like, Collegiate runners from Wisconsin decided that they were going to do a progression-style run around the Pettit. So get a bunch of guys together, and they would start at 6'10 pace, and every three laps, the pace knocks it down until you get to the point where there's only one person left. Or if they're not being able to eliminate people anymore, they'll ring a bell at the end, I believe once it gets towards like like 4'10 pace, that it'll be just like, okay, last lap, whoever wins wins. I've never gotten to that point, but they'll start the Now that women do it, they start the women a little bit slower at 630. I'm just starting with the men this year at 610, but, um, it is, it is very fun. Like it's such a vibe to go. And I want to say last year we had like a big group. And so it's this huge pack of people running around, but there are like children free skating on the inside of the speed skating center because it's just a normal ice rink at night but then yeah a bunch of people come out and just yeah go and grind
0: and what is like your goal what's your rate i know you said you don't race plan but what's your
1: plan <laughs> so the what i'm going to be doing that day is tomorrow morning i'm going to probably do five or six by mile on the local track so like use it as kind of a double t day um so I'll do a workout in the morning and then we'll head there in the evening. And honestly, the goal is just get down as fast as I can and see how it feels. It's it's a nice opportunity to like play around with a bunch of different paces and to just do some solid threshold work with like like friends. So the goal is to kind of just go out have fun like stick with it as long as I can I obviously can't get as fast as the men on there but I want to see if I can get down to like five minute pace by the end let's go how long will you be running for like how long does it usually last for you on a good year on a good year it's 12 to 14 I want to say but that's with a warm-up included Okay, so like the actual, the actual like grind fest progression run. Yeah, it might be shorter this year because I'm starting with the men. Usually, I start with the women at six thirty, so that generally adds on probably two to three miles. So that'll be obviously fewer this year. Now, if you had to, <laughs> you
0: think you'd be able to run like a, side, a sub five-minute mile tomorrow night
1: in it? How are the legs feeling? I. I don't think so. I, especially with a workout in the morning, I don't think we're, I don't think I'm going to be running a sub five mile. I, if, if I do run a sub five mile, I will, what should I, I feel like I have to like celebrate that in some way. Whoa. I like that. What? Yeah. Let's ask Izzy. How? Izzy, if how I would. run a sub five mile at some point in Grindfest tomorrow, what, how should I celebrate that? Should we get cops? Yeah, I mean we should get cops for I know we should get cops regardless. What's cops? I think of a fun. Cops is a frozen custard place Ooh. in Milwaukee. It's like excellent frozen custard, excellent burgers. Actually, yeah, I think we're just going to do that regardless. <laughs> Okay. Well, either way, you're still my favorite
0: runner, whether or not you run some five minutes <laughs> at the end of this tomorrow. Thanks, in, Jules. <laughs> in the middle of like probably a 130 mile week. So let's just put it into perspective here, fam. Uh,
1: well, I think the problem is trying to do it on the back end of like a workout in the morning is going to be because I've never done a workout before Grindfest. As yeah, well. that is.
0: Yeah, that's challenging. I'm yeah. excited
1: for you. I wish this was live streamed. Yeah, is he's actually going to be announcing it? Oh my gosh. Amazing. I know. Isn't that here? I'm just plugging in my iPad real quickly because I'm going to yeah. run out of battery here.
0: No, of course. Um, okay. So my last question before we head into listener questions is mm-hmm. what is, so we're approaching Christmas. This is going to be published after Christmas. What is your favorite part of Christmas? What is your favorite
1: holiday tradition that your family does? Mm. Um, I so the Christmas Eve is almost better than Christmas for us because it's my mom's whole side of the family comes over she has a ton of siblings and so we have a bunch of cousins and a lot of our cousins have little kids now too. so it is like cheaty family just craziness at our house on Christmas Eve and we always do a white elephant amongst the cousins and the adults and I've got, a pretty, I'm pretty excited about my, my white elephant this year. So I, I can't spoil the surprise. Actually, because this will come out after Christmas, I can say what I'm planning on doing. So I was talking with John about this, but the origin of like the, like white elephant is basically this idea that it's supposed to be something that you like are supposed to pretend that you like, but you can't get rid of it. And it's like, horrible and unwieldy to have in your house. And so I really, now that we've been doing this for long enough, I want to establish a true white elephant gift, like a traveling gift that like someone is going to be stuck with this and required to keep it in their house all year long. And then they can add to it in any way that they want and then bring it back the next year. So this'll be a rotating gift that is always within the white elephant pool that has to be brought back but that you are required to keep in your home. And what I am thinking of doing is trying to find some sort of taxidermied animal, like a raccoon, and turn it into a lamp. Like this, find like a like a a lamp and then a taxidermied raccoon holding up the lamp. And this will be the like the gift that somebody is going to get stuck with. They have to keep it in their home all year and then they can improve upon it in any way that they want and bring it back next year. And then someone new will be stuck with it.
0: I love this. I also feel like there's
1: hints of sad girl track club in this. Mm. So it might not be a raccoon though. It's just going to be whatever preferable taxidermied animal we can find. Okay. Please take photos and and post on the gram. For sure. That will, that will very much make
0: it up on there. Okay. Good thing someone you live with loves to thrift shop. I know. I'm going to I'm going to lean on Izzy yeah, for this where one. Where can we get a taxidermist? Yeah, well, there is a taxidermist so down the road
1: from us that we took a like it, when we were in like grade school they did like a field trip to this like taxidermist. So I'm like maybe we can hit him up. So
0: fun. Yeah. So as we transition into listener questions, I said this at the top of the episode, but I just want to, again, like thank everyone so much for submitting such thoughtful, fun questions. I wish we could take them all. We unfortunately can't. And this is going to be just a limited edition. Mm. One time only, one month we're taking it, the listener questions. Um, And I thought we'd start out with a lighter question. Mm. Um, So, and I also didn't include people's names, just to respect anonymity. So first question from a listener, what would your theme song be to describe your
1: current training cycle? (laughs) My theme song. Ooh. I feel like I'll have, like, I choose, like, famous or not, or, like, favorite songs over a build. But I'm trying to think of one that would describe the build. I feel like it would have to be something, like, a little bit chaotic. But can I think on this one for a while? I feel like I need to come back to this. Can you remind me of this at the end of the pod? Yeah, and then sure. come back to it? I, I need to, like, marinate that one for a little bit. I know. It's a good one. That, that's actually a really good question. I never thought of that. I feel like it would need to be some song that is, like, a good combination of, like, confident yet also very chaotic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I could see that for you. right? <laughs> actually, now. wait, no. So... Uh, this, I've So I've mentioned before, but I really love Kendrick Lamar and his song, Rigor Mortis, is like one of the strangest, like r- like hardest rhyme schemes that I've heard. But it is just very cool, like a really good driving beat, but it's very chaotic. It's like this syncopated beat. I feel like that would be a really good one for this build because it's a really, it's a little bit chaotic, but it is like, yeah. It's kind of like, I'm going to fuck some shit up. <laughs> I love that. Did you listen to that when you were going around Camp Verde? I did listen to that when we were going around Camp Verde.
0: <laughs> I love it. Okay, cool. We're going to all look that up on whatever platform. We'll, to we'll link rigor mortis to, yes. to the pod <laughs> and channel some of Molly's speed and chaos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Next question. I was wondering how often you're touching goal marathon pace during workouts. Hmm.
1: Uh, pretty often, I would say, uh, most of my, most of the work that we do is either slightly below marathon pace, slightly above marathon pace or right around there. Like threshold work of how we do it is typically pretty close to, to goal marathon pace, I think, especially at altitude, um, Like when I'm going out and doing double T's, a lot of it is kind of right around what I hope to run the marathon at.
0: Okay. So I'm going to add on to this question a little bit. So zooming out for a second, like in your weekly volume, Mm. how much are you touching gold marathon pace as well? Because like, yeah, you do so much over your volume easy.
1: Yeah, that's actually true. Probably maybe 20%. So 20% is quality. Yeah. And then 80% is easy, easy, easy or moderate. And
0: in that 20%, if you were to look at gold marathon pace for you, where,
1: how much of that is gold marathon pace? Um, I would say in that 20% of quality work, probably at least 15% of it would be a right around gold marathon pace. Okay.
0: And then I feel like I'm, I'm kind of, I need to probably come back to our listener questions, but I do think it's, this is interesting for like the exercise physiology nerds. Mm-hmm. So, with altitude and with your marathon pace, you kind of just alluded to your threshold pace at altitude is comparable to
1: your marathon pace at sea level. Is that what you were saying? Yeah. I think it's probably different for for people who are either born at altitude or have lived up there for a really long time. Like I know someone like, like the NAZ women like Alephine um, or Sarah Hall, who's been up there for a really long time. they can like their threshold pace at altitude is typically a lot faster. Like they, there it's probably much closer to like their half marathon pace um which is like a true threshold i think but for me and just because i'm not necessarily someone who goes crazy hard in workouts i'm a lot more moderate approach i i think my threshold pace we keep it a lot closer to what i would hope that like my goal marathon kind of is like we're doing especially leading into um Tokyo, a lot of stuff right around like, I think my threshold at altitude was right around like 518 or so. So we did a lot of stuff there. Like Chicago was a little bit slower. I just wasn't quite as fit as that. So little, like closer to like 520 to 525.
0: Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get back to listener questions because I can see I have this tendency to diverge. So next listener question, if you could train anywhere in the world for a 12-week buildup, assuming all of their commitments were the same across locations, money, family, sponsors, where
1: would you go? Mm. I really love the idea of getting to train in Kenya for a little bit. I think that would be really fun, especially because the the weather, especially in the winter, is much nicer. We actually, like, floated the idea of going over there for a little bit. Um, and just because there's so many people training over there, I feel like it would be nice to have a lot of training partners. But I don't know. Honestly, I feel like I live in, like, a dream training location. So it's kind of hard to be like, oh, let's go somewhere else. Yeah, I don't know. I think, it like, if I wanted to race, like, a good marathon, it would probably need to be in flag (laughs) either flag or kenya that's probably about it for me actually if it was somewhere totally new though i'd love to train in mexico city like we've talked about like trying to go there at some point i feel like it would be cool to explore but i don't know logistically how well that would actually work
0: cool Okay, well, we got lucky, luckily, you love where you live, it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> That's a plus. Okay, so next question um, is a listener asked, How did you connect with or choose
1: to work with your coach, John? And what is your actual training set up with the Verde Track Club? So, my Uh, my coaching journey with John started very unconventionally because we were teammates on a professional running team in Boston that we both ended up leaving. I left in the summer of 2019 and I wasn't sure whether or not I wanted to continue running professionally at that point, or if I could continue running professionally. And John being my best friend on the team, I actually texted him. I was like, hey, John, can we meet up for coffee or something? I want to float the idea of you just writing some training for me. And he was not a coach at this time. He was just a full professional runner who also worked at his dad's hardware store. And we went down, met. Basically, the idea was until I found a new training group, he would write me training. And over the course of that fall, I qualified for the Olympic trials. um, And I was like, I'm going to do one last hard push. I'm going to go out to Flagstaff. Like, make the push to see if I can like get fit enough to run the 10k at USA's but I'll do the trials and in the process John <laughs> like not not unintentionally but unknowingly coached me onto an Olympic team and discover that he is kind of a coaching prodigy when, like I think he's now the youngest person to ever coach an athlete to an Olympic medal in athletics um, Yeah. Like, like John is the real deal. And so, oh, obviously the pandemic happened. Sorry, this is going to be a a long kind of long winded. No, I'm a big John fan. I'm here for this. But yeah, John basically then over the pandemic, because he was dropped by Saucony, like he was dropped by Saucony and so wasn't running pro anymore. And like, we had been talking about like, Hey, what do you want to do? Like, you're pretty good at this. Like we need to find a way to cultivate this. He didn't know if he wanted to maybe try and find a college coaching job or whatnot. But basically over the course of the next like two years as I competed in the Olympics and then beyond that, he was like, I really want to be a professional running coach. I really want to be out in Flagstaff. I really want to make my own team. And he's done so much for my career that I'm like, you know what, like as long as you're willing to invest in me, I am invested in you. And so I feel like that's been the most fun part of all of this is that I get to do all of this with my best friend who is so invested in like just the success of everyone around him that I don't know, like I am the biggest John Green fan. Like I will sing his praises to the high heavens, like check out Verde Track Club. He coaches amateur athletes and like, it's been really fun to create a pro team, like it's a very small pro team right now and we're trying to grow, but getting to bring on Jesse Hansen, um, and Adam Sjolan, and then a couple other, um, amateur athletes has just, it's, it's just fun getting to watch this community grow.
0: Mm, That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, John is incredible. When I did my marathon this past October, I was self-coached, but I talked with John about my training plan and him and I had like a call before my marathon and I just feel like something special about him is he takes like everyone's running just as seriously. Like mm-hmm. obviously, you're trying to make Olympic teams. I'm just trying to run for fun, mm-hmm. but I feel like he treated me with the same level of care and intentionality mm-hmm. like gave me so much good insight. And so, yeah, I think it's so cool that he not only coaches you, mm-hmm. but he also
1: coaches anyone. Yeah. well, and like it's I actually had a long conversation with him the other night. He came over for dinner. And we kind of like, we're just like getting, getting into it of just like what his coaching philosophy is. And like, I, it, I was discussing with him of it's, you can go out and you can find workouts online. Like at this point, I'm of the opinion that everybody, especially amongst pros, all the training's the same. Everyone's doing double T, everyone's doing threshold like it's basically all the same stuff. And I think what really makes the difference is the emotional side and the just like, like the psychological side of it to like put it bluntly. And I, that has been the thing that has made the biggest difference for me. Like when I, when I switched to being coached by John, it was this radically different approach of just, he cared about me so deeply as a person. And I think he does that with everyone that he coaches and, being able to see the entire person of what they're going through in their life and not see like dealing with emotions as a, like, as like a necessary, like difficulty of coaching, but seeing that as like an integral part, I think is just a fundamental shift from how most coaches behave.
0: Yeah. I think that's such a
1: good insight. Um, is John taking on athletes? he is taking on athletes right now um yeah basically he will like he has like different levels of like online coaching that he does um and then we're going to be trying to recruit i believe we're going to try to go out to the olympic trials um and maybe see if like yeah see if we can yeah recruit some some professionals there but yeah he is basically looking to grow both the amateur side Um, and the professional side within the next year. Yeah, we're going all in on VTC.
0: Let's go. (laughs) Okay, next question. I'm curious about Molly's relationship to running through pain and injury. In the most (laughs) recent episode, Molly mentions running cross champs with torn cartilage in her knee. It got me wondering, how does she go about assessing injury pain? How does she know if enough is enough or if it's okay to push through?
1: This is actually another conversation that I just had with John because so I will preface this as what I'm going to say next is very specific to pro running. This does not like I think amateur running and elite amateur running is a different level of it because I do things as a pro athlete that like by the nature of what my job is, I kind of have to that there are certain times when I have to push through a level of pain being a professional runner because you kind of just have to do that. Like for instance, before the Olympics, I had a stress reaction in my sacrum. Um, And normally for something like that, if I was not up against a time crunch, if I was not, yeah, not dealing with the Olympics being several months away, I would have taken a full like six to eight weeks, let that thing recover, full non-weight bearing. But by the nature of it, we had to take pretty much two and a half weeks off and then get back into training. Like the minute that I physically could run on the ground, we had to get back into it carefully. But it's it was a much faster progression. Or same thing with my knee. I have torn cartilage in my knee um, that I've dealt with since college. And I have to get used to running with an amount of pain that most people would probably not want to put up with on normal runs. It's a delicate balance with pro running of this. It it sounds really bad when I say it, but John has equated it to like, as a coach, he's realized that like pro running is not healthy. Like what we do is by its nature, pushing the limits of what happens. So most pros are generally dealing with some sort of injury, something chronic, or just a general level of discomfort that most people don't want to put up with and shouldn't put up with. And it's the act of trying to go after something really big that you have to be willing to push through some of these things that you realize what you're doing. It's kind of like the equivalent of like walking over hot coals that it's probably not good for you and it's going to really hurt, but there's something on the other side that you're trying to get to. And John has equated it that the coach's job is to like, hold your hand as you walk over the hot coals and tell you, Hey, it's going to be okay. Like he doesn't like, you don't want to be the coach that's screaming at people that they need to walk over the hot coals and be like, why are you feeling pain? You're not supposed to feel pain. It's supposed to feel good. Like John acknowledges that there are things that we have to do as pros that like, He would never, never tell his amateur athletes to do, but it, uh, we almost might need to cut this part. I feel like I'm not saying this right, because it sounds really problematic when I say it.
0: I don't, I want to pause you. I don't think it sounds problematic. I think it sounds really honest actually. Yeah. So I think like it's actually really important and it's it's also your perspective. Like Mm -hmm. I think this is your perspective as a pro. Yeah.
1: Um, Like this is just what, what I've had to do, like when I was a sophomore in college, before I figured out how to run well in college, I didn't, I was like, it was just like, I was running so hard and I was like feeling all this pain and I couldn't understand why I wasn't getting better. And honestly, I appreciated that my assistant coach at the time, Sean Carlson, he was probably the realest that anyone's ever been with me. And he was like, Molly, you got to decide at some point if you want to feel good or if you want to run good. And sometimes that's the truth of it. Like to run really well, it really doesn't feel good the majority of the time. And you run through things that you wouldn't necessarily like want to have to run through. And I think for the majority of people, that's where, like if you're running for health, you should not push through some of these things you should take off when you're injured you should not push your in like not push your return to run by the nature of what we're doing at this far end of the bell curve pro marathoning is incredibly damaging to your body i will probably not be able to walk by the time i'm 50 but for what i'm doing right now it's a sacrifice that i'm willing to make and it's a calculus that i have to make in my mind
0: and Okay. So I know this is not a follow-up question, but I'm going to ask one. Mm-hmm. So like, why? Like what, why the sacrifice? Is it because you have a sponsorship and the money? Is it because no, of your big no, dreams? Like
1: what, tell me why. I think it's in the past, it's come from an unhealthy point. Like there have definitely been times where it was almost like a, like I don't care what happens in the future. I'm going to push as hard as I can right now. And I couldn't figure out where that came from or why it came from and doing more thinking on it. It's been interesting to find that it's like, yeah, it's not even the, like the achievement thing. It's not even the, like in the, like, man, if I push through this now, I'll get a medal. That hasn't been the calculus. It's almost this calculus of feeling like I'm at the, like, almost like this frontier of like, like what my mind's capable of. And it's this really cool feeling to be right on that edge and knowing that it's something that not many people get to experience of that kind of pushing beyond the physical bounds and changing my relationship with pain. It's, it's this incredible feeling when you are in so much pain in a race in a marathon say and you can come to terms with it and accept what it is and realize that just because you're in pain you don't have to stop and you don't have like you can accept it for what it is and make peace with it and then find this incredible place beyond that and that's that's where i think the truly great performances come from Like in the Olympics, it's people like, how did you run in that heat? How did you do that? And it was this, it was like going to this place that I'd never been before when in every objective manner, I felt like a boiled egg. Like I never felt good in that race, but I hit this place where I was like, I am in so much pain right now and I accept that. And I'm going to go and do this anyway. And that's where the bronze came from. It wasn't of going out there and feeling good that day and having an amazing race. It was feeling that pain and taking it in and like making it a part of me and then going beyond it. Mm. Sorry. I felt like that was like such a long-winded answer
0: (laughs) to that original question. It's really powerful. It's like I hear for you kind of working through pain and injury for you, you feel like that is a part of kind of being at the top level of sport, of pushing your body, of riding the fine line that you ride. Mm-hmm. It comes with that territory. And that for you, the why behind it is like this real deep desire for self-exploration mm-hmm. and for exploration of like your potential of your mind and of your body. Mm-hmm. And being able to explore and be at the frontier of these places that most people don't, you know, haven't done the work to be there.
1: Yeah, it it, it almost is that kind of like, if anything, I feel like all the therapy I've had to do has like helped in a way of understanding that a little bit of, I'm trying to tweeze apart that feeling of pain from, from me of like being able to be in a race and feeling the most pain I've ever felt and separate myself from it. Like just because I'm feeling this pain doesn't mean that's me. This is an experience that I'm having. And if I can separate myself from it a little bit and almost observe it as its own thing and just sit with it. Not like, it's almost like touching a hot stove and being able to just keep your hand there and be like, I know that I'm in pain right now and I'm observing it and I want to take my hand off, but I'm just going to delay it because I know that something is on the other side of this that I'm trying to achieve.
0: So interesting. Okay. I'm gonna take a next list letter question. It's a lot more light. (laughs) (laughs) As a Wisconsin sadness. (laughs) Yeah. Out of the pain cave. Um, so next
1: question is as a Wisconsin native, what is your favorite cheese? Ooh, my favorite cheese. I love a good, like a really good sharp cheddar. Like Nothing is better than a solid, though I, mm, see, now we're going to get into it. I just had um, some little brie on a baguette from a, a store down the street from us. And I'm like, brie is so freaking good. It's so soft and lovely. Um, I Um Pretty much, I'll take any cheese. Goat cheese. Goat cheese is lovely. Um I love a feta. I love a gouda. See, there's too many to choose from. This is actually a question somebody asked me on a run last week where they're like if you can only have one cheese for the rest of your life i think it was hannah steelman asked me this she's like if you can only have one cheese for the rest of your life what was what would you have and i think i went with mozzarella just because i feel like that's a very versatile cheese oh
0: yeah i like that yeah mozzarella can
1: like carry the team but like given the choice a good sharp cheddar nice
0: okay next question if running is a metaphor for life what are some lessons it has taught you lately
1: running is a metaphor for life oh god i feel like i gain all of my life lessons from running it like teaches me something new every time um i think the lesson lately has been you always like deep down you always know the right thing. It's like we let we let our brains or we let the crosstalk or like what people are saying to us like influence us a lot more that we convince ourselves that we don't know the right option or that we don't know what to do. But I think if you're willing to actually like get down to it and listen to what your body is telling you and what like your heart is telling you, I think you always kind of know that like, in a a, for instance, with this of like, with my knee right now, I, there are a lot of times where I'll just like push through when it's, when I shouldn't be, because I'm like, I have to do this work. And I have to do this time when it's like, if I'm actually listening to myself and it's like, you need to go and do an hour of mobility, or you don't need to be doing this right now. This would be better. It's like, it's almost this thing of like, you have to, be able to cut the bullshit sometimes and do what you know your body is telling you to do
0: Mm. so it
1: sounds like the lesson is like really listening to yourself actually listening to yourself not the not letting the obsessiveness or like i and i've fallen into this all the time with like i am the queen of like intrusive thoughts and i let that that i let that get to me of like oh I, I shouldn't eat this right now because I like, I didn't run enough today and I didn't earn it. Or I should go out and do an extra like five miles or whatnot. The the last year has been a really big growth for me of like actually trying to listen to what my body is telling me and not what my brain is telling me. Mm,
0: Very, very cool. Mm -hmm. Okay. We have so many more questions, but I'm going to wrap it up with one more from a listener. Um, which I thought was really sweet is what marathoner do you most admire and why?
1: I think it's tough because I've like, I've been reevaluating, like just like the person that I want to be. And I feel like sometimes like when I look at the sport and how it's been done, I have so many people I truly admire, but I think the sport needs a radical change in a lot of ways. And I think there we're at a point where running is becoming such a cultural moment right now that there needs to be a greater diversity in what we see as pro marathoning and what pro marathoning can be. And so I think right now it's tough because I don't see anyone in the sport that is like doing it in the way that I want it to be done, or doing it with an openness. I think right now, like honestly, not a marathoner that I admire, but just a person that I admire in general is Nikki Hiltz. I think Nikki Hiltz is what the sport needs right now because Nikki is living their fucking truth. Like, and they are racing hard and being out there, being vocal, being the person that they know they are. I like. I really admire that, and I think that marathoning needs that.
0: So yeah, so so awesome. I'm a mm-hmm. huge Nike fan as well, and I think mm-hmm. they, yeah, they're incredible. Not just like balancing professional mm-hmm. running, but being an
1: activist and an ally. And like, I all think of- it's. I think it's that it's this idea that like a lot of uh, like Nikki is not afraid to go out and be an activist and be doing stuff and like just being out in the culture and not being like, oh, I've got to stick to running like they are like being a badass on the track and then also doing a ton of cool things. I mean, they're kind of like the David Beckham of running right now. Oh my gosh. I want to see their future three-part documentary on their life. 100%. I would like, I think that there is like, there's a documentary that is being filmed about them right now, but it's like the combination of just like fashion vibes and running super fucking fast is like, that's it. Oh my gosh. Can't wait to hype that doc. Okay.
0: Mm -hmm. So, um, as we kind of wrap up, I'm curious Mm -hmm. to check in with you about, like, how are you thinking about the trials? You know, it is super soon, six mm-hmm. weeks out. Where are you at when you think about that day? And
1: what is January going to look like for you with training as you prepare? We're getting so close right now that it's kind of like I'm trying to like almost break it into just like micro microcosms of just like, it's really easy to focus on that day and start getting really freaked out about it. And what worked for me the last time was going into it and not feeling like I had to reinvent the wheel on the day. It was just going out and being present in that moment and running as hard as I fucking could on the day, and not trying to be anything, not trying to, yeah, show anything. Like I don't, I don't want to go into there with like this chip on my shoulder or having to be Molly Seidel, Olympic bronze medalist. I want to just go out. And just race hard and race how Like, I know how to race. And I know when I actually listen to myself, I know what I'm doing. And it's just trusting that, I think. So, I, I, yeah, I think some of it is just trying to have that calm focus that I know I can cultivate. And just be, yeah, just be ready for the shit to probably hit the fan at multiple points and deal with it. I'm yeah. not going into this hoping that everything's perfect. I'm hoping that this experience is gonna be chaotic and beautiful and absolutely insane.
0: Yeah, messy. Cause that's yeah. just like that's being human. I, oh, mean- I
1: I am I feel like that's like what I thrive at. I just thrive in the absolute messes of situations.
0: So when this month, like are you gonna go to Orlando at all? Where like where are you actually gonna be training? Are you gonna be doing any
1: races? Like we're so I think the plan right now, we might go like ten days out to Orlando, like the twenty fourth or something. Um, but T B D on that. I feel like I either like going to a race four days before or ten days before. So we'll make a last minute decision. If the weather's nice and flag, we might stay longer. If it's like get looking like it's gonna be hot in Orlando, we might go out a little bit earlier. So Like I said, we, we make a lot of contingencies and then we kind of just figure it out when the time comes. Like we'll probably figure things out on January 20th of what we're going to do.
0: Yeah. That decision tree model, like you have a lot of branches to go down. Yeah. A big old
1: decision bush. (laughs) (laughs) A big bush. Big old bush. (laughs) (laughs) And are you going to do any races in the next month? No, probably just head down training like, well, I'll get back to flag right around the 27th of December. And then, yeah, just focus on trying to ball out at this race.
0: <laughs> I love it. And the yoga teacher and me um, in yoga, oftentimes there's this like practice of setting intentions. And I wonder when you think about January, like if you were to maybe set an intention, whether that be like a statement or a word that you want to kind of call in or embody, what would that be for you?
1: I think my intention would be just like authenticity of, I don't, I've spent so much of my career focusing on what other people's workouts are or worrying that I'm not doing enough or comparing basically. And I want to be able to just do what I know that I need to do and not be worried that it's not enough or different from what other people are doing. Like, I'm I'm at the age where I'm like I trust myself enough to know that like what I'm doing is pretty valuable and has value regardless of what if it doesn't look like other people's training or other people's process. So I think it's that I really want to stay authentic to myself and have confidence in what I'm doing and not get swayed because that's what happened the last time. Like last trials I was so nervous that I literally left flag i had been training there the whole trials build and I went to boulder of all places to stay with family friends because I was like I literally cannot deal with comparing myself to other people's workouts anymore because it's gonna freak me out and this time I'm like I feel like I've grown a lot over the last four years and I'm like fuck it like I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do regardless
0: awesome I love that authenticity keeping that in close to your heart this next month and just so grateful for this time thanks for making it um i know it's a busy time for you with the holidays so it's
1: always a gift no oh, thanks jules this was so much fun getting to talk with you
0: thanks for tuning in to our fifth episode of the Built Up, a beyond the pines production this month our episode is audio only no youtube video a huge thanks to John Summerford for music and audio production. Tune back in in January. Happy New Year and be well until then.